Greetings, Hushtillians. Welcome back to another edition of Declassified Discussions. I'm Slick Frank Sanders. And I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. Today, we are honored to have one of the world's leading experts on UFOs. He is a British journalist, TV personality, who worked for the UK Ministry of Defense from 1985 to 2006, and ran the project where UFOs, alien abductions, crop circles, and other strange phenomena were investigated. He's also been a regular on numerous TV shows, including Ancient Aliens, Expedition Unknown, NASA's Unexplained Files, among others. As well as the author of two science fiction novels and three books about UFOs, most notably Open Skies, Closed Minds, and Encounter in Randlesheim Forest, the inside story of the world's best documented UFO incident. Hushlings, listeners, watchers, please welcome the great Mr. Nick Pope. Thank you. It's good to be on the show. Nick, thank you so much for giving us your time and being here on the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Yeah, it's it's a good time to be on a show like this because I think, uh, particularly in relation to UFOs, a lot of things which people thought were just fringe conspiracy theory, people now see front and center in the mainstream media, right in the spotlight. Uh, they see everything going on with the U.S. Navy videos, uh, congressional interest, and much more besides. So it really is out of the fringe and into the mainstream with this subject. Nick, first and foremost, could you share a little bit about yourself for our listeners who might not be aware of you or your work? Certainly. I worked as a civilian employee for the UK Ministry of Defense for 21 years. And the, the UK Ministry of Defense is broadly equivalent to the US DOD. So I got moved around, uh, posted either level transfer or promotion every three or four years. So in the course of that 21-year career, I did a number of different things, uh, a lot of them quite routine, you know, personnel policy, briefing senior officers on, on various issues. But I think obviously the, the topic for which I'm best known is that from 91 to 94, I ran the MOD's UFO program. And our, our brief was to look at the individual sightings, about two or 300 each year, and at the phenomenon more generally and ask the question which I think the DOD and Congress is now asking, is there a defense and national security issue here and perhaps a flight safety issue as well? So, so that's something that I did for three years. And then when I was posted on and, and then eventually took early retirement, I simply felt that this was too interesting and important for me to turn my back on it. And although I'm still bound by the UK's Official Secrets Act, which is a, a NDA that's binding for life, much of the work I did was actually unclassified. And even the classified portion, a lot of it has now been declassified. And indeed, the British government declassified and released most of its UFO files a few years ago. And they're, they're freely available at the National Archives and on various other sites that mirror the content so there are you know i can i have to be careful but i can i can talk about this in a degree of detail there's quite a bit that we don't know about what's declassified at from the uk ministry of defense do you have any like maybe top two or three things that you can enlighten us with that maybe have been declassified that people can look up yeah, I think you mentioned that I'd written a book on this, but the Rendlesham Forest incident is 
is uh, something where the case file has been released. And uh, it's, it's interesting because it's largely, a lot of it is public correspondence, but it's a classic case, I think, of the best place to hide a book is in a library. Because in amongst that, there are some policy papers with some intriguing little hints about all this. Uh, for example, that there was a brief radar contact, but also, critically, this wasn't just lights in the sky. It was alleged that, that a craft of some sort landed next to two military bases, U.S. Air Force bases on British soil. And uh, there was physical trace evidence. And the case file talks about some of that. And there's even a document from the defense intelligence staff, which says that the radioactivity levels recorded at the landing site seem significantly higher than the average background. So it's great to have something like that in a government file on a UFO incident where there's zero percent debate about the provenance of, of this. So that's important. There's also an intriguing reference in the same file to materials relating to the investigation being taken away by the uh, senior US Air Force officer in, in Europe, uh, CNC USAFE, General Gabriel at the time, which is interesting because, of course, at the time, 1980, there was officially, at least, no US government interest in UFOs at all. We were in that kind of gap, or, or what they say is a gap, between the end of Project Blue Book, uh, December 1969, and the whole more recent ATIP controversy. Well, self-evidently, the US didn't get out of the game and things like that illustrate the, the case. So that's one. Another one I'd refer you to is something called Project Condine, which is a code name for the rather less glamorously named uh, study. It was an intelligence assessment of the phenomenon in its entirety. And I think the technical title is um, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena in the United Kingdom Air Defense Region, which is a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, that's a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> it was classified secret UKIs A, I think, at the time, uh, a redacted version, but still with quite a lot of, of blacking out is now on the National Archives, UK National Archives website. And that's interesting. Uh, there's, there's, again, there's a reference to, to Rendlesham, but much more besides. And one of the interesting things in there, reading between the lines, is that we found it easier in a way to find out what Russia and China were doing on this issue than what the United States was doing. And that is interesting. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Well... For, for whatever reason, the U.S. government between Blue Book and ATIP went dark with this. Now, in, in one sense, I guess you could just say it's political embarrassment that if you're officially not supposed to be investigating UFOs and it, it is revealed that you are, you have arguably misled the Congress, you've misled the media, you've misled the public. So there's an element of that. But I think it goes... I think it goes deeper because there's a, there's a line in this declassified report where it says, words to the effect of, um, we, there is a loose grouping of intelligence officials or a agencies taking a look at this in the US, but it's not clear if this is indicative of a more formal program. So 
even given the so-called special relationship between the UK and the US, even given the intelligence sharing arrangements under the Five Eyes Agreement, this was something where, frankly, we at the Ministry of Defense could not get a handle on what the US government was doing on this subject, what they knew, and what they thought about it. And of course, this, this is pretty much where Congress is right now, saying to the DOD and the intelligence community, we want answers to those same questions. What, what were you doing going right back to January 1st, 1947, actually? They want the, the GAO, uh, among others, to look at that. It's amazing that it was fringe for so long and everybody was just kind of stuck in this stigma of if you talked about it, you were nuts. And now it's just the last couple of years, it's gotten so mainstream. I feel like a, a lot of people are still not paying attention to that. Because when you see a headline in mainstream media, whether it's a corrupt mainstream media or not, you see the United States government knows that there's something that's non-Earth vehicle. And that's in the headline news. And people are like, Ah, it's wild how we're still kind of at that point where people are talking about it. The, the people that should be talking about it are talking about it. I still talk to some people. So what do you think about UFOs? And they're like, they just roll their eyes. I can't believe we're still here. One question I really want to ask you is, how did you get involved with the Ministry of Defense? What sparked you to do that? I, I joke that it was the family firm. My father was very senior in the Ministry of Defense, too. He, he was a, a scientist, aeronautical engineer by trade. Uh, he was director at uh, the Royal Aeronautical Establishment, Farnborough, but then went on to, to be deputy chief scientific advisor and a number of other things. And, and I, I just felt that, you know, growing up, what clearly some of the things that um, he, he did and, and talked about obviously at unclassified level um no no secrets over the cornflakes but <laughs> but um you know i went for example to the um farnborough air show from from when i was a uh, very small and loved loved that um and and just the idea of government service appeal the idea that i would be working for my country doing something for for my country as opposed to say a corporate job where you just, you know, everything you do is just about, you know, increasing the profit margins for some faceless board that you'll never meet. So, and I got to do some amazing things, not just, not just the UFOs, of course, but I, in, you know, it's all, I suppose, a 21 year career. There are lots of different things, meeting fascinating people, going fascinating places, got, got to go briefly to places like Kosovo and, Iraq a couple of times and got, you know, to fly in some great military aircraft and, and do those sorts of things. So it was, it was just fascinating. And the idea that you'd come home, come home and see things on the news and think, oh yeah, you know, I know about that. And then <laughs> conversely know that there are things that you've been involved with that you'll never see on the evening news. That's, that's fun too. So I kind of, I, I think my father was a huge influence in my, my joining. I mean, um, and I don't regret it. I don't regret it for a moment. I mean, I, I'm glad that I took early retirement because I had other things that I wanted to do, but, but I wouldn't swap that time for anything. It was, it was great. The UFO side of it, 
I, I should say the UFO side of it, I fell into by accident because it was just a question of the, the standard posting policy. I was due for a move. That vacancy cropped up. I had worked to the particular manager before. Uh, during the first Gulf War, I, we were in the Joint Operations Center together just doing briefing of, of defense ministers and things. So I had worked for that particular boss, and he said, I've got the vac a vacancy coming up. I know you're looking for a move. I said, what's the job? And he said, UFOs. And the rest is history. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, I, I was going to ask if you went into that career path with the precursor that you wanted to research and get into those sorts of things. But that's crazy. It was just no. kind of accidental. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I had seen in the Ministry of Defense telephone directory, which at the time was itself a classified document that, you know, we all used to leaf through it and plot our next posting, so to speak. And, and everyone was kind of intrigued that there was a job that just said next to it UFOs, whereas all the others were a little bit longer, technical. It would say things like updating NATO war books, responsibility for integrated um, purple exercises, you know, things like that. And then there was this other job, it just goes UFOs. <laughs> and I thought, okay. How stressful is it to have kind of all these government secrets that you can't share with anyone else? How much pressure is, is on you to not slip up or not to say anything to a family member or anyone around you? I mean, is it kind of understood at this point that nobody's going to ask you questions about it? Yeah, that's a very interesting question and one that I'm not asked a lot. I think, I may be misquoting, but I think it was Carl Jung who said secrets are psychic poison or something like that. And, and there, is, there is a degree of, of pressure, which, which is why... Um, you know, despite various security clearances and need to know principle, uh, very often, of course, people meet each other through work and it's kind of an accepted thing that couples will talk. The other side, when that doesn't happen, the other side is just socializing. You do, you do a lot of socializing in your divisional groups and you know, the need to know principle is, shall we say, unofficially relaxed a little if if you're in a that sort of environment and inevitably there's a, a sort of what what are you up to at the moment uh, what yeah. are you doing i mean sometimes of course because it's not so much like the need to know principle going out of the window because your colleagues are very often to some extent involved in what you're doing anyway so so there's a release there's a release there that comes through through talking to colleagues um but it is difficult, and it's it's obviously there is carrot and stick, and if you do if you do cross the line, uh, you will get a knock on the door, obviously. And the, the for anyone who does divulge classified information without appropriate authority, um, the, generally speaking, the the full might of the criminal justice system will come down on you, as we've we've seen with various you know people who've either betrayed their country and spied for the enemy or or leaked information to the the media mm, for sure getting back to one of your books open skies closed mind you write about your interests in ufology can you fill us in on what got you inspired to spend so much time and ultimately a career in ufology i know that you spoke a little bit about the ministry of defense and how you got into that but beyond that well i think i i sometimes say that that the twin questions of 
whether or not we're alone in the universe and and are we being visited are some of the biggest and most profound questions we can ask ourselves as human beings. And and yet, particularly with some of the tools now in our hands, whether it's things like James Webb Space Telescope or or whether it's on on the the military side, space fence and and some of the other things that we have. Of all the big and profound and almost philosophical questions, you know, is there a God? Does consciousness survive death? Uh, the question of extraterrestrials is is perhaps the easiest to answer and and can be answered actually in a straightforward scientific way, perhaps, as I say, with with the resources and capabilities that we currently have, and if not those, with with certainly the next generation of them for sure. And it's also the impact of, of this, the societal impact of if any of this, if a single case turns out to be the, the real deal, then, then there would be such far-reaching and impactful changes on almost every aspect of our society from politics and religion through to science, technology, and the economy. Can you elaborate on that impact just a little bit more? Do you think it'd be like for the better or for the worse, chaotic or blissful? What what does that look like? A world that is enlightened to extraterrestrial evidence? It's it's almost impossible to answer that because there are so many variables that arise within that scenario. I mean, literally, are we talking about uh, visitation and face to face contact? or simply picking up, for example, a radio transmission from a civilization we may never meet. Um, and if we do interact with extraterrestrials, is it one civilization or, or two or multiple? And are, are they, I mean, are we literally talking, you know, ET or War of the Worlds? So, so I think the, the impact could, could cover everything from, from an existential threat and, and, total panic through to what I hope it would be a sort of sense of awe and wonder at, at this realization that it's not just us and, and perhaps whether it's face to face or, or whether it's tapping into information perhaps encoded in, in a radio signal, like you see in the sci-fi movie contact, for example, um, mm. the fact that we could, could learn things that we don't currently know, whether it's um, about you know the, the laws of physics and the, the universe in which we live, or, or whether it's something else, some other. What really excites me is the idea that in a universe nearly 14 billion years old, there might be civilizations out there with, with hundreds of millions or billion year head start on us, and might there be entire bodies of what they would call their, their knowledge you know, falling into categories which, when when we say things like physics, chemistry, um, biology, that, that they may have whole fields of of knowledge and study and things that they are able to do that that we at the moment may not even have the the language to describe or even the conceptual awareness to visualize. As far as that goes, let's say that we do have that in-person contact, no way around it, aliens exist, extraterrestrials are here. How do you think that goes on to, and it's, it's a bit philosophical, I guess, but how do you think that goes on to 
affect world religions? I think that's one of the really tricky questions with all this because there has, interestingly, there has been some research into it. And, and I think there's a, a theologian called Ted Peters, for example, who's, who's done some work. A lot of this work is just polling people and interviewing them, doing, doing follow-up interviews. And here's, I think, the problem with this. A lot, of, a lot of the major world religions sort of talk the talk with this. So we've, we've seen in the last few years, for example, the Catholic Church say that there's no doctrinal objection to the existence of extraterrestrials because, as they put it, man may place no creative limits upon God. You know, if, if God wants to create aliens as, as, as well as us, that's, that's God's choice, and it's not for us to say what could or couldn't be. So they've kind of tried to position themselves, maybe get ahead of the narrative a little bit. I don't think they know anything. There are conspiracy theories that say that, that we're being prepped for this. I'm not, I, don't, I don't think that's the case, but I think no organization like the Catholic Church I'm talking about here, that's endured for around 2,000 years, has survived by being dumb. They survive because they've, they've got a True. degree of cunning about this. And so I think what they're trying to do is get ahead of the game here, maybe avoid the sort of science versus religion uh, battles that, that went on in, in the Middle Ages, for example. So, so they talk the talk, and the other religions are the same. The, the polls, they say, uh, and when people are asked, they say, oh, yes, yes, I'd, I'd easily be able to incorporate this in, into my religious belief. And what you'll hear, a soundbite that you'll hear people say with this is, oh, it would, it would just make the glory of God's creation seem even bigger and better. But there are some people, and I think I count myself as one of them, who think, well, that's fine words now before it's happened, talking theoretically, but... But when, when the rubber hits the road, I think, I think it may be very different. And the idea that we might not be top dog anymore, for, for example, I, I, think, um, I think a lot of religious people almost believe, and, and the whole concept of a priest is that, that you know, the people, the ordinary people can't really have a relationship with God except through prayer. You need to go through this sort of middleman of the priest. And... and a, a lot of organized religion sets itself up on we've got a special position. I don't, I don't think they can get away from this sort of human-centric, earth-centric mindset. And then if it turns out that we're just living in a very crowded cosmos and we're not particularly bright or special, um, we're actually at the sort of low to medium end of things and there are people out there far smarter who might regard religion as just primitive superstition that, that civilizations grow out of. I think that's going to be very tricky for the, the religion. So they, they're saying good things, but I think they will have a real problem with this. And I think the bottom-up kind of reaction from, from the fundamentalists in, in whichever religion we're talking about might be more panicked and angry and... and I don't know, but uh, I think it's, it's very difficult to predict how this will go because of the variables, but I think religion will have a problem. 
Could you fill us in on what the wildest thing you've seen in your time with the Ministry of Defense? And if that happens to be something that you can't talk on, maybe something from your independent research that you believe is definitive evidence for extraterrestrials of any kind? Well, I'm not one of these people who says, this is 100% real, believe me, I've seen the smoking gun, because I haven't. I'm one of these people who says there's a lot of intriguing cases out there. And and I'm talking about the sorts of things that are exciting Congress right now. Sightings from pilots simultaneously backed up by radar evidence, simultaneously filmed on forward-looking infrared, uh, that, that sort of thing. I think... One of the wildest, and I can't say too much about this, but I went, I did a, I went on a visit to RAF Filingdales, the, the, the old ballistic missile early warning center, uh, part of the network, but the one in the UK, in Yorkshire. And I remember there was a briefing we had, and um, it, went, it was along the lines of, oh, we see fireball meteors from time to time on the space tracking radar. They come in at speeds of, oh, 20,000 miles an hour or whatever. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting. And I said, just to be a little bit subversive, I said, well, how do you know they're fireball meteors? And, and the, the Air Force officer looked at me very straight-laced <laughs> and said, well, because they go so fast. What else could they be? So, so there are things like that. And then there was a, one time I was at an intelligence briefing and there was a, a photo of a particular UFO that, that we'd been sent which had been analyzed within the defense intelligence staff, but also another part of the intelligence community called JARIC, which was Joint Air Reconnaissance Intelligence Center. And the briefer, he, he sort of pointed his thumb at the picture. He said, see that? And he was talking, not to me, because I, I knew the backstory, but he was talking to, I think, my boss and maybe some others. He said, see that? He said, that's that's... And he, he started pointing. He pointed his finger one way. He said, that's not the Americans. And then he pointed his finger the other way. And he said, it's not the Russians. And he said, so that only leaves. And he pointed straight up at the ceiling. And everyone kind of looked at his finger, looked up at the ceiling, <laughs> looked at each other, blank looks. Nobody quite dared ask the final question. And everyone just sort of nodded and and... And that was it. And, and, you know, all through the briefing, for example, he, he kept using the phrase, these people. He said, well, these people, you know, we see speeds and maneuvers and accelerations and these people, you know, and on the way back, my boss said, um, interesting briefing, Nick. I said, yeah, boss. And he said, just <laughs> one thing. Said, yeah. He said, who the hell did he mean by these people? He said, who are these people? And I said, boss, you should have asked. <laughs> A couple of years ago, there was the Israeli prime minister. I think his name, Aim Mashid, uh, probably butchering his name. But he had come out and said that aliens exist. Trump knows about it. He was making some pretty wild claims. And he talked about um, the intergalactic or the galactic federation that we were a part of. Did you hear anything about that? And what do you think about officials coming out and saying these wild claims? Well, he's not the only one. I, I admittedly, he went a long way um, further than than some of the others who who always kind of leave the door open. It's like it's like in these briefings, people will use euphemisms 
for what they really believe that we're dealing with. People will leave something hanging and un unsaid. I think, um, yeah, Haim Eshed, I think his name. Now, I'm, my understanding, I don't think he was the Israeli prime minister. I think he was either head of their space program or certainly he was he was a very influential figure in the Israeli space program. And I think he's sometimes known as the father of, of Israeli you know, satellites and, and space and, and all of that. And yeah, I, I mean, the original interview was in Hebrew and, and maybe my, my initial thinking was maybe something has been lost in translation, but yeah, as you say, he, he said, you know, apparently without it being tongue in cheek, though, as I say, I, I do wonder about if anything was lost in translation, but apparently said, yeah, it, this is all real. We are being interacted with. There are multiple other civilizations. They, they do come together in some sort of, <laughs> I hate to use this word because it sounds so kind of wacky in a way, but, but um, federation. Uh, and and that there was to be some, some sort of imminent announcement and and then at the last minute it was called off because apparently humanity wasn't ready. Uh, you know, there's in in the intelligence analysis community, it's the old joke that when you hit something like that, you your assessment is interesting if true, and that's about all I can say. Hmm. I've not met the the guy, so I, I I can't drill down into it and see see whether it was literally meant or or not, but, but it's not as if he's the only senior official making remarks, which, which a few years ago would have been unheard of. I mean, president Trump dropped some, some hints. I know in a, an interview with Tucker Carlson, with one interview with his, his own son, uh, president Obama has gone on chat shows and made some fairly revealing comments some of those have come out directly some some one came out through will smith i think another one's just dropped actually um former dni john ratcliffe gave a very interesting interview on fox news a year or so ago where where he said and again it's dropping things like this little nuggets into the conversation he said oh it's not just a ufo seen by a military pilot here a UFO tracked on military satellites there. So again, he dropped into the conversation in a way where there's been surprisingly little take up, though Congress did notice uh, the, the fact that these things show up on military satellite, which, which is to be expected. If all, the, if all the stories about being able to read license plates from space are true or broadly true, then, then why wouldn't the sorts of huge triangular shaped craft that people report, why wouldn't those be be picked up? And apparently the answer is they are. I've seen that definitively once in my life, and that was a physical object. It was there. So I can only imagine what the military has for radar capabilities and satellite technology to be able to see stuff that you can't even see that might even be physical. Is there a thought that you might have where some of these, when you're referred to as these people, they could be something from above, or the thought of them actually being ultra-terrestrial and actually being of Earth and were interacting them. They could be from inner Earth or 
even on a, a whole nother dimensional plane that we're not able to actually interact with at all times. I try to stay open-minded about this. I'm less sold on the whole ultra terrestrial idea because I think that even though I, I accept the argument that, for example, we know less about the deep ocean than, than we know about the surface of, of the moon or Mars, but I, th I think there are... If you're talking about underwater, there are there are huge impediments to a civilization developing underwater, where you you, with the exception exception of a few sort of um, thermal vents and things, you you couldn't couldn't really get fire going, you couldn't get engines, you couldn't you couldn't um, get smelting and and any of those sorts of processes. So I think the idea of that or the idea of a hollow earth is it's more difficult because I think a it's it's difficult to conceive how it would really have evolved. And B, I think we would, notwithstanding the remark about you know, deep ocean, I, I think we would have detected the fingerprints of a, a civilization that lived somewhere else on our Earth. Interdimensional, I, I mean, that's, that's an interesting one. And, and of course, just a few years ago, I'm sure all, all that would have been dismissed as science fiction. And now... Now we have string theory and we have Michio Kaku at the, the Large Hadron Collider, for example, literally doing experiments to discover these so-called hidden dimensions that are actually necessary if the string theory equations are to hold together. So, so I try not to rule anything out, but, but I guess I'm, I'm just naturally drawn to the idea that if there is an exotic solution, I, I think that an, an life evolving around you know on an, another planet orbiting another star has has a certain kind of I, I don't know symmetry appeal I suppose the idea the idea that the laws of physics seem to be the same in the observable universe the idea that that obviously the periodic table will be the periodic table everywhere I mean the same elements will will exist and and the idea that that somewhere out there, probably multiple places, there might be other life and indeed other civilizations. Pulling it back a little bit to the congressional hearings, do you believe that we'll get maybe not full disclosure, but enough disclosure to a point where we're having these officials coming on TV kind of like in Israel? Do you think that that's something in the near future or farther out? I, I think the problem with that, I, I think that can only happen if the U.S. government or elements therein is indeed in possession of, of this knowledge and, and maybe even artifacts, debris, whatever, whatever it may be, you can only say, okay, folks, here it is, if you actually have it. And I think that there's a related and maybe more likely scenario, which is that yeah, they at, at one level, and I think we're here already, at one level they acknowledge the reality of the UFO phenomenon, whatever that may be, but they say, we don't know what it is, what we're dealing with here. And Congress, of course, says we'll go and find out. So you've got, I think it's very interesting, Congress is asking, is asking really for things related to those two separate scenarios because on the one hand they're saying tell us what you already know we want to know about legacy programs historical documents and files we want the gao to go back to january 1st 1947 
and looking forward tell us everything that you've amassed. But the other half of what's in the legislation is more about, it's more predicated on the idea that maybe they don't know, maybe they're not in possession of a smoking gun, a, a literal spaceship in a, a hangar. And, and so the other half of the legislation is use all the resources and capabilities in, in the military, the intelligence community across government, Lupin, NASA, who, who of course are now doing their own study, and and study this and bring us back the answers. So it's kind of, it's tricky. And what the language in the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023 is very broad at the moment, covers a lot of different things based, as I say, around those two scenarios of scenario one, the government knows about this, so please tell us. Scenario two, they don't know, so go find out. And just in terms of what's going to happen next, obviously the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023 is likely to be, or the wording is likely to be rolled into the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023. And that's, of course, one of those must-pass pieces of legislation. So it will, it will pass. Now, the real question is, of course, what's going to happen to all these UFO-related provisions? Last time around, and of course, there's, there's language in the current act, in the current NDAA. Last time around, some of the, the really interesting bits, I think, got, got dropped out. I mean, obviously, there's a degree of negotiation between the various committees looking at this and, and DOD, and, and some things may not survive. But I think, I think what we'll get will be very robust. There will be, for example, I hate to use this phrase, but almost like a whistleblower provision where anyone who has knowledge of these sorts of programs but believes that they're still bound by an NDAA, uh, but pardon me, by a, a non-disclosure agreement, is, is effectively released from that agreement by the legislation and can come forward and testify to Congress. So that's likely to go in. Um, and, uh, and the GAO looking back to 1947 and, and trying to find out what's already known, that goes in. But also a much more joined up, robust investigative effort that when pilots see these things, they're to be reported within 24 hours, properly investigated. All the data that we have, whether it's radar, FLIR, satellite, all that will be looked at. And, and of course, within Congress, both in the Senate and the House, in the intelligence committees and, and uh the armed services committees, they're, they're all watching. And the great thing about this is it's bipartisan. So you've got Marco Rubio, you've got Kirsten Gillibrand, others too. So I think that makes it more likely that, that this will, will get through pretty much as drafted. And it's exciting. Very much so. I should say also, we've had one in May, we had one, we had one public hearing. Obviously, we've heard that there have been classified briefings already. And of course, we got the one preliminary assessment from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence on June 25th, uh, 2021. We will get more of those sorts of reports. Uh, there will almost certainly be more classified briefings, probably more public hearings too. So looking forward, I think, I think there are some interesting things coming. Quite what it will deliver, I don't know, because just recently, uh, John Greenwald who, who's a researcher who 
runs a the Black Wolf Vault website, goes after a lot of things using Freedom of Information Act. He recently got a response. We've all seen, of course, those three U.S. Navy UFO videos. Yeah. Well, they've admitted that there are multiple further videos, but just in the last couple of weeks, John uh, got told, no, we will not be releasing any of that material, even in redacted form, because of the damage to national security. So, so yeah, there are a lot of people pushing for answers, but there are still some fairly big road, roadblocks here as well. Hmm. Well, they're important, I would say. If it's not something from another world and it is another country, that's a big problem. It's huge. If, if an adversary has developed um, aircraft, drones, whatever it is, with, with the sorts of speeds, maneuvers, accelerations, transmedium travel, uh, the, the sorts of things that are being described by the pilots and seemingly confirmed on, on the radar and on the FLIR and on other, other platforms too. I mean, the ODNI report talked about this, this being across multiple platforms simultaneously with some of these events. Um, if that's an adversary, if that's China or Russia, um, we are in trouble. And, and a number of, of senators have, have made that point and, and said, look, we need, you know, if, if this is true, there's, there's potential for catastrophic damage to the U.S. national interest here, which is you know, just another reason why we need answers on this as soon as we can get them. I'm a little weary of freedom of information requests. For me, it seems like something that could just be sent out by the government and it may not contain all the information that you want, or it could be fabricated information. I don't know how likely that is, but it's something that's always kind of stuck with me is that there's documents and certain things that have been declassified and maybe they are willing to give that to the public. But at the same time, maybe it's the conspiracist in me, but yeah, you conspiracy theorist. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I really trust those requests and what, and the information that they're getting from them. Is it possible that the government is fabricating these things or making these things up or even releasing things that just don't make sense on purpose or, I mean, is that a possibility? I think, I think and I, I'm speaking from experience of having, when I was at the Ministry of Defense, having handled some Freedom of Information Act requests, actually not on UFOs because that predated the UK's act, but on, on some security and counterterrorism related subjects. Um, we did not, we, I, I know people kind of roll their eyes at this, but, but we, we really did not lie to people. We, we would arguably perhaps not give, you know, the, the fullest possible answer or, or sometimes it arguably was, was not quite answering the question asked. But generally speaking, with Freedom of Information Acts, it's much easier to, to just refuse to answer and cite the various exemptions, some of which are, are obviously, as you know, very, very broad brush. I mean, so for example, I mean, on, on defense and security, national security, on intelligence, they're fairly broadly drafted, but also and this is, a, this is something that we saw with the Pentagon's ATIP program. The moment you put 
a defense contract into the private sector, for example, you've got the additional FOIA exemption of, of you know, information relating to private companies and, and corporations. So that adds an extra layer. But it's much easier, as I say, to, to say you can't have that because it falls under this or that exemption than it is to fabricate something. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but generally that if, if you were fabricating something, that would be in a circumstance where the whole thing was a psyop or, or was some sort of intelligence operation maybe to make an adversary believe one thing when the truth is another. And that's, that's not as common. That's, that's, clearly those things do happen, but it's much more common that you simply say that's still classified and you can't have it. While we're on the subject of fabrication, psyops, and conspiracies, it's only natural for me to ask you your two cents on Project Bluebeam, which is the hypothetical artificial arrival of extraterrestrial heavenly beings or some sort of creator staged by powers that be as a sense of like control for the masses. What do you think about that? Do you think that's a possibility? You know, I've changed my mind on this this question. I think a couple of years ago, my answer when, and I have been asked that before, my answer was that I'm not sure the text there. Uh, I mean, people have talked about holographic projections, the so-called ghost gun or whatever it's called, the idea that you could use holograms and Hollywood special effects and, and maybe some things that you already have to fake an alien invasion or to fake the second coming or or whatever you want to to fake in order to manipulate people i i used to to say i don't think the text there so i think the whole thing would fail but i think i think in one sense without wanting to go down this particular rabbit hole covid has taught us something very interesting about in a way how easy it is to manipulate the media and and whole populations and how quickly panic and hysteria can can set in in a situation where you know bad though things are they're not as apocalyptic as we're being told or 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 sort of have convinced ourselves so i think i think i've walked it back a little i think people maybe i i think People will be writing papers about this, I'm sure, as as we speak. People within military intelligence about what lessons COVID can teach us in how to manipulate belief and, and how to spread panic and, and fear and how to cement c- control, for example. So I, you know, I, I still think I, I'm not sure there is a Project Blue Beam quite as envisaged by the UFO and the conspiracy theory community. But I think the reaction to COVID would give any PSYOP officer worth their salt, you know, a a lot to work with and say, my goodness, you know, we we could use that. So I think not quite Project Blue Beam, but, but there are, there are things that, that could be done. Now, what, whether it would last 
or not. I don't know. We're back to the Ronald Reagan quote about uh, his speech where he said to the UN, and he, I, I occasionally think how quickly we would set aside our differences if we faced some threat from beyond this earth. And we saw that, of course, in the plot of movies like Independence Day. But I suspect that after that has been dealt with, whether whether that is real or or fictitious, alliances would fall apart. I mean, history shows us that sometimes people do come together to to fight a common foe. But history also shows us that after that foe is is defeated, those alliances quickly fall apart or, or relatively quickly fall apart. So I'm, I think there's something there, but I'm not quite sure it's, it's exactly what people think it is. So we're definitely not going to see a bunch of holographic hologram UFOs in the sky and having or our, Jesus. Uh, yeah. Or Jesus <laughs> up in the, up in the clouds uh, or both or, or both. both <laughs> an ensuing toilet paper shortage will come after that. Nick, we want to thank you so, so much for your time and answering some of the questions that we have. And we're totally honored, as we said before, to have you as a guest and enjoy this conversation. And please, before we wrap up, can you tell our listeners where they can find you, social media websites, where you can find your books, or even if you have uh, lectures? Sure. Um, my website is nickpope.net. Twitter which is the social media platform I use most frequently is Nick Pope MOD for Ministry of Defense. I just just couldn't let that go. <laughs> uh, all my books are on on my website, but also on on Amazon and and similar sites. And uh, I guess the events that I have next, I think there are currently thirteen of them in the diary. Oh, I'm a regular on the show Ancient Aliens. And there is now uh, Ancient Aliens Live. And as I, I say, there are 13 different uh, cities in, in the U.S. and hopefully some more to come. So, so look out for that. And that's, that's myself, Giorgio Sukalos, David Childress, William Henry, and Dr. Travis Taylor from Skinwalker, amongst mm, other things. Mm -hmm. So lots of, lots of interesting and fun stuff coming to a city near you. I think there was one close by to you guys pretty soon, I think. Up in New England? I think it was a minute in Pennsylvania or something like that, New Jersey, something. Yeah, we there, there are a lot of them up in, you know, it's it's people always complain, oh, there's not much up in the the northeast and and I think uh, actually the center of gravity has has been there, but um, there there are other other places too. I know we're going to Phoenix, to Tucson, to Indianapolis, Des Moines. Look at Ancient Aliens Live, and it's all up there. And I, I think, I think I can say that there will probably be some more, too. Wonderful. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Again, thank you, Nick, for coming on. We appreciate you so much. Catch us on the next Declassified Discussions. I'm Mystery Mike, and I'm Declassified Dave, and I'm Sick Frank Sanders. Mm -hmm.